Chapter Three of the General Principle of Relativity, in its philosophical and historical aspect. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada. The General Principle of Relativity. In its philosophical and historical aspect, by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter Three, the Antimony of Movement. Aristotle, in the Physics, says that the Zeno committed a fallacy when he argued, "If everything in order to be must, whether moving or at rest, occupied an equal space." And if a body, when displaced, occupies at every moment an equal space, then it follows that the flying arrow is immobile. It is an error, Aristotle argues, because time is not composed of moments, that is, of indivisibles. Neither, indeed, he adds, is any other magnitude. Whether or not Aristotle's refutation of Zeno's argument is sound, it is certain that philosophy generally has not found it possible to dismiss the problem of movement in this summary way. Many philosophers, indeed, have been equally confident, but a glance at the history of philosophy shows the problem. Cropping up in some form in every stage of the evolution of the concept of metaphysical reality, Zeno's famous arguments against movement are four in number, and together they are so compact that those who would refute them look in vain for a logical loophole. The first declares that it is impossible that a body can move from one point to another distant from it, because. Before it can traverse the whole intervening space, it must pass through half, and before it can traverse that half, the half of the half, and so on to infinity. The second is that Achilles, in his race with the tortoise, can never overtake it, if it is allowed to have a start. For to do so, he must first reach a point at which the tortoise is, but when he reaches it. The tortoise will have moved on, and Achilles, therefore, will have always a step to take. The third is that the flying arrow does not move, because at every moment it is at rest. The fourth is that if there are three processions in the stadium, each composed of equal numbers and equal masses, one of which remains stationary while the other two move with an equal velocity but in an opposite parallel direction, passing the first in mid-course. Then it follows that each moving procession will traverse an identical space in a time, which will be both half and double of itself. The last of these arguments can be made quite clear in a diagram. Let us suppose. A one, A two, A three, A four, B one, B two, B three, B four, and C one, C two, C three, C four to be the three processions. Let us suppose their first position to be the first two A's 
overlapping with the last two Bs, and the last two As overlapping with the first two Cs. The As are stationary, the Bs are moving to the right, and the Cs to the left. When then B1 reaches A4, C1 will reach A1, and their position will be completely overlapping. But in reaching this position, the Cs will have been consecutively in line with all the Bs and with half the As, and the Bs will likewise have been in line with all the Cs and with half the As. But Bs and Cs and As occupy equal spatial magnitudes. The difference, therefore, is not in the space. The time also is identical, for it is one and the same interval. Yet, it is only half for the Bs and Cs what it is for the As. The half, therefore, is identical to the whole, or the time is the double of itself. The argument may be put in another form, which perhaps is even more perplexing. Suppose the processions to be points and the succession instants. That is, suppose the divisions of the movement to be units of time and space. Suppose the position at first instant to be the A's, B's, and C all overlapping, and at the second instant, when the B's have moved one point to the right and C's one point to the left, then at the first instant, C4 is in line with B1. At the second instant, it is in line with B3, but it must have passed B2, and there is no instant in which it could have been in line with B2. Also, B4 is at one instant in line with C1 and at the next with C3, but C2 lies between. When was B4 in line with C2? Aristotle's refutation of these four arguments is of particular interest. The fallacy consists in supposing that the equal magnitude processing the same velocity moves in the same time both relatively to a mass in movement and relatively to a mass at rest. Therein lies the error. Physics 4, page 14, line 10. By this he appears to mean that while mass and velocity of a moving body remain constant, the time it takes to pass a body at rest and a similar body in movement is not the same. This might be interpreted as an anticipation of the principle of relativity so far as time is concerned, but clearly the very opposite is intended. Aristotle means that time is absolute, and that less of it is occupied in passing a mass at rest than in passing an equal mass moving parallel and opposite to it. This, however, leaves Seno's argument unanswered, merely affirming what Seno supposed to be affirmed. Zeno says, in effect, that if movement is real and a body passes from point to point, from moment to moment, then you are committed to the contradictory and absurd assertion that the same time is different. Zeno lived in the 5th century before Christ the century which preceded the great philosophical enlightenment presented by Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. He was a pupil of Parmenides, the head of the famous Eleatic school of philosophy.
The rival Ionic school had as its founder Heraclitus of Ephesus. The two schools represented opposite and contradictory principle. According to Heraclitus, becoming. According to Parmenides, being is the first principle of existence. There is a curious outward resemblance between these early speculations and those of modern transcendental philosophers. The resemblance is in the concepts, and it is a striking illustration of the way concepts abide identical throughout all change of imagery. Moreover, first principles present themselves to reflect as essentially simple and extremely general. It was, however, in their successors that the doctrines of the great founders developed into paradox. Thus. The doctrine that all things flow, that reality is universal becoming, was developed into complete paradox by Cratylus, as related by Aristotle in the following description of the Heracleitians. And again, they held these views because they saw that all this world of nature is in movement, and about that which changes, no true statement can be made, at least. Regarding that which everywhere, in every respect, is changing, nothing could truly be affirmed. It was this belief which blossomed into the most extreme of the views above mentioned, that of the professed Heraclitians, such as was held by Cratylus, who finally did not think it right to say anything, but only moved his finger and criticized Heraclitus. For saying that it is impossible to step twice into the same river, for he thought he could not do it even once. Metaph four, page five. It was this doctrine which Zeno combated. No one will understand Zeno's arguments who regards him as merely a skillful dialectician and ignores the essential fact that he had reached independently. The conclusion that movement is not reality but appearance, and used the arguments to enforce it. The arguments, therefore, are not sophisms or exercises in logomachy. If you seek his own solution of his paradoxes, it is quite simple. He held that nothing moves, that reality is one and unchangeable. It should be noticed that the four arguments are cumulative in force. The first chose movement to be impossible. The second chose it to be unreal. The third contradictory, and the fourth absurd. The first deals only with space, and infinite divisibility of space is made the obstacle of movement. The second chose that if movement be supposed actually in progress, contradiction breaks out in the concept of velocity. In the third. Discrete points in space are correlated with discrete instants of time, and the contradiction lies in the attempt to correlate the passage of one point to the next with the passage from one instant to the next. It involves the paradox that the arrow is somewhere at no time or nowhere at some time. The fourth combines all the other three, for it takes into account the space. The time and the movement, and it shows that measured by points and instants, 
Velocities are infinitely different and all equal. This was Sano's problem. It is a problem, therefore, which has its origin in the early Greek nature speculations, in which the development of Western philosophy takes its rise, and it is a problem which has persisted throughout the whole of that development and is an unsolved problem today. The form, however, has changed. It is an antinomy of reason that it presents itself to us. No one today, even if he argues, as Mr. F. H. Bradley does, that movement is appearance and not reality, is content with the simple denial of movement and affirmation of the unchangeable one. The antinomy in the concept of movement consists in the fact that the thesis which affirms it and the antithesis which denies it present themselves to the mind as equally valid, yet they are mutually self-contradictory. The thesis is: there are movements for reality. The reality of life, in particular, denotes activity. A thing is what it does. The antithesis is: there are no movements. For a condition of movement is that a thing which moves shall endure unchanged throughout the movement. But if nothing changes, nothing moves. The antinomies of reason were made by Kant the central point of interest in the modern philosophical problem, so far as it concerns the basis of physical science. According to Kant's theory, antinomies arise when the mind makes an object of the whole series of conditions which constitute the system of the world. It is the nature of the mind to present itself such an object. But the world so presented is an object of reason, not an object of sense, intuition, nor of understanding. The object of reason is an idea of the unconditioned. It transcends any possible experience, and as thing in itself is unknowable. The objects of reason give rise to ideas, the soul, the world, and God. Which have an important function in theory of knowledge, but they are not objects of which we can possess any empirical knowledge. Our interest in them and their value to us is practical, not speculative. We only know phenomena, not things in themselves. The antinomies of Kant give us then, in modern form, the contradictions which lie concealed. Or which, if known, are consciously ignored in our ordinary common sense concepts of space, time, and movement. Two of the four antinomies which Kant distinguished as mathematical from the other two as dynamical are directly concerned with these concepts. The first deals with the self-contradiction involved in thinking of the world as limited. Or as unlimited in space and time, the thesis is the world has a beginning, and the antithesis is the world has no beginning and no limits in space, but is in relation both to time and space infinite. This antinomy expresses a difficulty 
which occurs to everyone in moments of reflection. It is impossible to think that the world has no first moment, for in that case, how are we to represent the actuality of the present moment? For that moment is a now which ends a series, and its reality therefore seems to depend on a now which began the series. But then, how, on the other hand, can we present to the mind a moment to which there is only an after? And not a before. Similarly, in regard to space, there is a point here, which has definite relations to the whole extended universe. The reality of these relations limits the universe. Yet, how can we think limits to the universe without, in the very thought, supposing an extension outside the limits? There are two contemporary philosophers. Mr. Bertrand Lasso and M. Bergson, who have analyzed Zeno's argument in their original simplicity as the denial of the reality of movement. Mr. Bertrand Lasso, Principles of Mathematics, Chapter Forty-Two, and Our Knowledge of the External World, Chapter Five, holds that Zeno is right. But that the paradoxical character of the arguments entirely disappears when they are expressed in terms of the modern mathematical theory of infinity. M. Bergson, Creative Evolution, pages three hundred twenty-five to three hundred thirty, and Time and Free Will, Chapter Two, holds that Zeno's conclusion is wrong in so far as it denies the reality of movement. And that his paradox is due to confusion between a reality in its essential nature, indivisible, and the intellectual device of a scheme, created and contrived for the practical purpose of division and articulation. The two modes of analyzing the old argument and the antithetical conclusions they reach reveal the two principles are contending in philosophy today, recalling in a striking way. The principles which divided the ancient world, the principle of the unchangeable one, and the principle of the universal flow. Mr. Russell maintains that the paradox is completely solved by the philosophical theory of mathematical continuity. According to this theory, space and time actually consist of discrete points and instants. But in any finite portion of space and interval of time, the number of points and instants is infinite. In an infinite series, no two members are next one another, for between any two there is always another. When accordingly space is conceived as infinitely divisible, this means that the series of points is compact. There is no interstice between one and another. Yet, though there is nothing between the points but points, the points are not next one another. There is no next point to any point. The infinite divisibility of time implies the same of the instance. Having defined continuity in this way. It is claimed that all the supposed contradictions in a continuum composed of elements are completely swept away, and the foundation laid bare of a reality on which 
a firm constructive philosophy can be built? The answer then to Zeno is as follows. Zeno asks, how can you go from one position at one moment to the next position at the next moment without in the transition being at no position at no moment? The answer is that there is no next position to any position, no next moment to any moment, because between any two, there is always another. If there were infinitesimal movement, would be impossible, but there are none. Zeno therefore is right in saying that the arrow is at rest at every moment of its flight. Wrong in inferring that therefore it does not move, for there is a one-one correspondence in the movement between the infinite series of positions and the infinite series of instants. According to this doctrine, then, it is possible to affirm the reality of space, time, and movement, and yet avoid the paradox in Zeno's arguments. Bergson's way of escape from the paradox is entirely different, for it rests on a metaphysical concept of life and a philosophical theory of the nature of the intellect. It does not depend on the mathematical definition of continuity, for mathematical continuity has no relevance to the problem. I mean that as Bergson presents the problem, it is indifferent how we describe or in what terms we define the continuity of space and time, because it is space and time themselves which are wrongly apprehended. They belong essentially to the intellectual view of reality, while movement as true duration or change is the fundamental reality of life. Take the points and instants of space and time as the elements composing the movement, and you will be forced to the conclusion that there is no movement, for the elements are immobilities and movement cannot be generated out of immobilities. But there are real movements, and the immobilities into which we seem able to decompose them are not constituents of the movement, but are views of it. There are thus two solutions of the antinomy offered to us in contemporary philosophy. I have not included Mr. Bradley's argument in appearance and reality because it can hardly be classed as a solution. It founds an important philosophical doctrine to the antinomy of movement, but it does so by accepting the contradiction and not by resolving it. There is, however, now offered to us a third and more complete way of escape in the new principle of relativity. This is, in effect, a reform of the foundational concept of physical reality, and it gives us a new worldview from which the antinomy has disappeared without violence done to reason or to science or to common sense. If we accept the terms of Zeno's argument, there is no escape from the conclusion, and the only salvation from the antinomy lies in successfully attacking the premises. This is what Einstein's theory does. It rejects the concept of absolute space and time. Space and time are not independent of the observer, 
and there exists no abstract spatio-temporal system by reference to which the velocity, direction, and duration of a movement can be absolutely determined. Space and time are variable, and they vary for each observer with his system of reference, and with every change in the acceleration of the movement of that system relative to other system. The four-dimensional world preserves its uniformity because our units of length, breadth, and depth and our unit of time, outer continuity, adapting themselves to the standpoint of an observer at rest, or rather, to the standpoint of a system at rest relatively to the translation of outer systems. End of chapter 3 The Antinomy of Movement Recorded by Kualada